You're listening to the 20 Minute Morning Show, The Real People of Charlotte Speak. This is Wednesday, November the 6th. I do remember when a principal called me, and this is when Dr. Wilcox was still here, and they were talking about reducing suspension rates. Well, Dr. Wilcox called up all the principals that were in schools from kindergarten through third grade and told them, you know, don't suspend the black students. And the principal was like, okay, what do we do with them when they're acting up or they're misbehaving? He told them, I don't care what you do with them. What does it mean now to have a majority white controlled school board in Charlotte Mecklenburg, which is, by the way, the most segregated school system in the state of North Carolina? And you ask the question, how how could this be that in Charlotte? Yes, in Charlotte. Now you have a white majority controlled school board. Annette Albright, she ran for at large seat for the School Board of Education in Charlotte. She's here to unravel some things with us and just give us some insight on what the black community can look forward to. I was very proud of the race that I finished. Um, It wasn't enough to quite get me over the finish line, but I was very proud of those numbers anyway. That's right. Well, now that Mary McRae is stepping down, Erica Ellis Stewart is stepping down, and uh, Elise Daschle, uh, Jennifer Delahara, and also Lenore Shipp, are the newly inducted members of the uh, Mecklenburg County School Board of Education. What does that mean for our children, our black children? Well, it puts us in a unique situation because we had two African-American members of the community stepping down. And the ideal situation would have been to get two more African-Americans in there on the board plus maybe one more by getting at least voted out. So the situation that puts us in now is that we have a six to three majority, which means we have six white board members and three African-American board members. So those three African-American board members will somehow have to convince two of the white board members to vote along with them to get anything push through for children of color. Uh, CMS is 72% minority, uh, which is made up of Hispanics and Blacks. So you would ideally uh, want your board to represent those demographics. So what we have here is a situation where 27% of the students within CMS are white, but we have six white board members. Right. 72% Black and Hispanic students and a majority okay. white school board is exactly. what we have. So with Miss Dashiell, she's going to be the uh, the chairperson, right? Exactly. She's out of South Charlotte, and it seems like uh, to me she wanted to be control of the uh, school board. But but my question would be, for what reason are they so interested in controlling a majority black school district? And you know that actually is an excellent question. I cannot tell you that because I feel if the situation was reversed, would the white community allow six African-Americans to tell them, you know, how to educate their children or when they're going to educate their children or allow us to make the decisions on what resources would be allocated to which school in a system where they were represented by 72 percent and African-Americans were represented by 27 percent. And I think that we can all say the answer to that is no. 
Right. I'm thinking on how did we as a community allow this to happen? Well, we're not unified as a as a big voting block because you and Queen uh, Thompson should have been grouped together as a as a uh, strong voting coalition to get you two on to replace Erica and um, and uh, Miss uh, Mary Stephanie Sneed. She was also running. Then we had another brother who was running for office uh, for the school board. We have had a black male represent Monty on the school Spoon. board. Yeah, in a and, long time. And also another black female principal, which was Donna Parker Tate. Yeah. So we had a large field of highly qualified um, black candidates, but a lot of the black community and especially our black ministers, our black community leaders through their support in behind Dashu and Jennifer De La Hara, you know, including sitting council members and members of the board of county commissioners. So you have to wonder what was their strategy if they're throwing in their support behind the white females who already come yeah. in with the money, you know, that okay. they're way I'm more affluent. Actually, the Black Political Caucus endorsed Stephanie Sneed, um, Monty Witherspoon, and Lenore Ship. Okay. But what you had working against the Black Political Caucus was you had the Black ministers, um, you had the Black uh, prominent leaders and community leaders endorsing Elise and Delahara. So, then the other six black candidates, you know, we're all also fighting for those black votes. So now you're splitting the black vote eight different ways. And then, of course, Dashu and Delahara have the ability to go to the white communities and also uh, get their votes. But not only their votes, and this is what makes a huge difference, you know, Elise raised, I believe, over $40,000. Delahara came in at $24,000. That was the money raised to go toward their campaigns. As a black candidate, we cannot raise that money in our community. So the white candidates had the ability to come to our communities and get our votes. And then they went back to their communities and said, hey, we need donations. Yeah. A black candidate cannot do that. With Miss Dashua, I know there was uh, some things with her uh, coming into these black churches and the black people just falling all out over her. And, uh, you know, something about us when, you know, white folks show us some attention, we just go crazy. And Absolutely. I, and I wonder what was promised. If you support me, I'm going to do this. What do you think the uh, the trinkets were or are going to be? Um, you know, I, I have no idea. Um, I couldn't imagine, you know, what it would take to sell a seat at the table, especially when we're talking about educating our black youth. Yeah. So I, I don't I can't answer that. I have no idea, you know, what you would trade off for that. But it's very disturbing. One of the things that you think is going to happen under their leadership. What, what do you think? If you could just point to one thing. If I could point to one one thing, I think um, struggling schools are going to struggle even more because 
I think that a lot of the work is going to be done from behind the diocese. And we needed representatives that was ready to push up their sleeves and walk into these failing schools and to see actually for themselves what was going on and help implement a plan of improvement. And with the candidates that you have sitting or the members, because they will be members after January. So with those members that are going to be sworn into the board, I just don't see that passion for our failing schools. Because failing schools do make a lot of money, right? Absolutely. Failing schools is a huge billion, over $4 billion a year business. So how do they make money with, with, with a failing school? Because they, so you're saying that they're not going to do anything to it to try to make some of these schools improve because of the amount of money that the school system gets or their buddies get by being consultants and things of that nature, right? Exactly. I think that, you know, they're going to put some things on paper that's going to look real good. But, you know, who's going to implement the work? Who's going to follow up? And with failing schools, the way they receive money automatically if you're in a Title I school, each child receives an additional $460. And that doesn't sound like a lot when you say it, but you multiply it by 1500 Some of these schools have 1,600 kids. That's over a million dollars a year just for that school. If the child has an IEP plan, that's extra money. If it's special needs, then that's extra money. So you also have federal incentives that they send down to these schools to help them improve. So when you look at all the sources of money that's coming into these schools, a school like Hardin High School is receiving per student more money than a Myers Park. What fills in the gap is you also have the parents at Myers Park. Yeah. So you might have a booster club that has $50,000 sitting in it because the parents donated it. A low-performing school will just continue to be a low-performing school as long as it doesn't get too bad where it's really glaringly obvious. For the most part, right. they just let it ride and keep the money pouring in. Just let it ride, absolutely. What you have in your head, the black parents need to hear it, and they need to hear it often and kind of uncover the the uh, the elephant in the room of what's going on in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, especially the 42,000 suspensions. I still don't think that's been addressed to the level where it needs to be. Absolutely not. And, and, you know, one of the things I think as black folks we have to be careful about is how we ask for things from this board. I do remember when a principal called me, and this is when Dr. Wilcox was still here, and they were talking about reducing suspension rates. Well, Dr. Wilcox called up all the principals that were in schools from kindergarten through third grade and told them, you know, don't suspend the black students. And the principal was like, okay, what do we do with them when they're acting up or they're misbehaving? He told them, I don't care what you do with them. Put them in the back of the room, put them in the hall, send them to ISS. I don't care. Just don't suspend them. So when you look at that, are we serving the students? Absolutely not. We're just housing them. But but those were the marching orders from Dr. Wilcox because he gave us what we asked for. He's not suspending the students, but at the same time, you're not educating them and addressing their needs. So that's where the board steps in, because if you have anybody that has an ounce of integrity in them, then they would go to that superintendent and say, 
No, sir, that's not what we mean. We mean that you're going to handle the discipline problem. You're going to educate the child. And the best that we can, we're going to keep them in class. So basically what he said was, you know, let them do what they want to. I don't care. Just don't suspend them. So we have to be very careful in what we're asking for. So the question is, over the next two years, what is going to take place in the most segregated school system in North Carolina, talking about Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, where this majority white school board turned this thing around with equity and education like they always talk about? We'll see. Keep it locked in right here. Spread this podcast with your friends. Let them hear what's going on in the city of Charlotte because we got to make a change coming up. Next two years, we'll keep our eye on this situation and you can hear all about it right here on the 20 Minute Morning Show, The Real People of Charlotte. Thank you for listening to the 20 Minute Morning Show, a podcast production brought to you by Inside Urban Media, written and produced by BJ Murphy from our Charlotte, North Carolina studios. Please subscribe to the show and you'll be alerted when our daily episodes are published weekday mornings at 6 a.m. Our daily contributors are Sean Sunday, AK from the UIN Uncut News team. And for more news about and for people of color, go to our website, uinews.net. And we'll see you on the next episode of the 20 Minute Morning Show, wherever podcasts are played. Minute Morning Show is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.